cold fury. That's what I'm feeling about the war on Israel. Hey, this is Doc Washburn. Recently, we've been focusing almost exclusively on video interviews. But this is different. This is an exclusively audio podcast that we're putting out in between video interviews. So welcome to the Doc Washburn Show. We push back against the Uniparty and the Deep State and let you in on the news that traditional talk radio is all too often afraid to talk about. Sometimes the news that TV news is afraid to talk about. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburn.com. Click on the button that says Become a Patron. Also, please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. And make sure you check out our new conservative sports podcast, Red Pill Sports with my friend Donnie Copeland, which drops Tuesday evenings at 11 p.m. Central. I never could have imagined having to deal with such an outrageous story on the second anniversary of the Doc Washburn Show podcast, but I shouldn't be surprised. Cold fury is what I'm feeling right now, and if you care about your fellow human beings, I know you are too. The jihadists of Hamas have taken great joy in slaughtering men, women, and children. Oh, oh yes, oh yes. Especially children, babies. Why? Because their so-called holy books, the Quran and the Hadith, tell them to murder non-Muslims, but especially the Jews. Now, until and unless you can wrap your mind around this, and don't take my word for it, go check it out yourself. Read the ninth chapter of the Quran and get back with me. Until you're able to consider the possibility that these bloodthirsty murderers might have some religious incentive to want to kill people, then you're always going to be shocked. You're always going to be surprised. You're always going to be scratching your head going, well, gee, well, I wonder why they hate us. This is why. This is why. They are taught this with their mother's milk. They are taught this from the cradle. Slay the infidels. Kill the Jews. That's what they are brought up with. I'm seeing so many good, well-meaning people on social media saying, I don't understand. How can people be this brutal? How can people be this vicious? I got the answer for you. I can tell you. My friend Robert Spencer, who I interviewed recently on the 22nd anniversary of the September 11th attacks on this country, he's been writing about this for years on his Jihad Watch website. He's been writing about this for years on his best-selling books. But you see, it is... uh, It's too painful for some people to consider this possibility. They can't deal with it. 
They can't deal with it. And so they refuse to. They will refuse to deal with it. Now, the great peril. I'll tell you something. It doesn't matter who I'm a fan of or who I'm not a fan of politically. If they're telling the truth right now, I'm going to tell you what they're saying. And Kevin McCarthy the other day said, look, they could do this here next week. Has it even occurred to you that that's possible? Well, how long have we had wide open borders? How long have we had who knows how many thousands of military-age men coming across those borders? Ben Burkwam is a good man. He's over at Real America's Voice. I met him last year when they were in Hot Springs, Arkansas, about a year and a half ago, to do an event there. He reports from the border a lot. Border Patrol has told him recently a lot of Syrians have been coming across the border. Can, can you do the math? Do you need somebody to tell you what time it is? Because that's, that's what I do. That's what I do. I didn't set out to do this. I got on radio in 1977 because I love music. And somehow, by the grace of God, 20 years later, I bumped into talk radio. And that's what I started doing. I don't know if I'll ever be on the radio again, but again, by the grace of God, when I lost my most recent radio job for refusing to get the vaccine, he opened this up. I got some audio here from a reporter on the ground in Israel named Trey Yinkst over at Fox who gets about maybe four or five hours of sleep a night covering what's going on over there. An update on the situation along the Israel-Gaza border. There have been more than a thousand Israeli airstrikes today against Hamas and Islamic Jihad positions inside Gaza. Also, a number of civilian buildings were hit. The Israelis are hammering the Gaza Strip, not just with airstrikes, but also artillery. At the same time, Israel is preparing to enter. It is very clear they have staged tanks along the border, thousands of troops, and they are preparing for a ground war. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu addressed the nation and the world tonight, saying that Hamas asked for a war, and now they are going to get a war. He also discussed some of the atrocities that were committed against the Israeli people over the weekend. The death toll has risen here to more than 900. And we do know in Gaza, more than 600 people have been killed. That does include some civilians. We're looking for accurate information and numbers on all of this, but this is changing by the minute. And it all comes as Israel is also facing threats from Hezbollah in southern Lebanon and also taking rocket fire and mortar fire along the border there. They've also deployed a number of troops with the Lebanese border, and they are working to get artillery and tank units to that area in anticipation of a multi-front conflict developing. Oh, by the way, by the way, 
don't know if you heard the, uh, the story of the, the babies being beheaded by Hamas. A lot of people on uh, social media are saying, oh, well, the Israeli government says there's no confirmation of that. I'm like, really? So I click on the link, and media out of Turkey says an anonymous source with the Israeli government says no, there's no confirmation. I'm like, oh, 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 I see. I see. Well, yeah. The, uh, the Muslims in, in Turkish media, they, they would never lie, right? Come on, man. L.A. Times reporter, despite all the confirmation, even Dementia Joe Biden said recently he's seen the pictures of the decapitated babies. If you can imagine that, and of course, the White House is walking that back now. L.A. Times reporter, despite all the confirmation from all the different media sources, saying, oh, no, 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 no. Some people are like, well, they weren't all decapitated. I'm like, oh, okay. So 40 babies murdered in one little village, some of whom were decapitated. But the ones who weren't, that makes it not as bad. Is that what they're saying? Furious. Furious. More from Trey Yingst over Fox. Infiltration attempts continue along the Gaza border. Israeli forces killed three Hamas militants tonight, close to Zakim, where we're at right now. Earlier, we were on the eastern side of the Israel-Gaza border, looking at the areas very close to where the initial incursion took place on Saturday morning. Still, the bodies of Hamas militants lined the roads. Israeli forces working to gain full control of this territory. Yeah. It's uh, it's really bad. I got one more, one more update from Trey Yangst at Fox. Bodies littered the town of Be'eri. You can see here, it's complete and total destruction. All of the houses are destroyed. Looks like many were blown up with RPGs or other explosives. People were shot and killed in their beds, executed at point blank range. This is the most horrific thing I have ever seen. I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. You stay safe out there, Trey Yingst. Daniel Greenfield over at Jihad Watch. Article entitled Savages. He says, civilization and savagery are fundamentally at war. We're in a war between savages and civilization. Everything else is a detail. Some of us woke up to that war when planes crashed into skyscrapers. Others, when we saw beheading videos spread across social media. What we saw in Israel, Hamas, terrorists, raping, mutilating, and defiling corpses is another bloody wake-up call. There will be many others. Beyond the politics... And the geopolitics, we still haven't come to terms with what we're fighting. The barbarism of murdering women and children, taking them as hostages, and posting photos of their dead bodies to social media is not a byproduct of Islamic warfare. It's the whole point. Cruelty, beheading, burning to death. 
I, look, I, I've seen pictures of charred bodies burned to death in their cars. Cruelty, beheading, burning to death, torturing and mutilating are the essence of Islam. This is how Islamic warfare was practiced beginning with Muhammad for over a thousand years. It's how it continues to be practiced, whether it's ISIS fighting other Muslims, whether it's Azerbaijani troops killing Armenians, Hamas attacking Israelis, or Islamic terrorists plotting carnage in Western nations. And they are. Islam was born out of a war by barbarians against the civilized societies of Persia and Byzantium. Despite academic myth-making, its vision never extended beyond rape and slavery. Its empires fell into power struggles, beginning with Sunnis and Shiites, and its cultural and scientific accomplishments were all looted from conquered peoples. When civilization finally toppled the Ottoman Empire with some help from its internal barbarians, the cycle began again. Israel is just one front in a global war between savages and civilization, and not all of the savages bow to Allah. There are inner-city gangs across the American hemisphere that behead and torture their victims. And there are children of civilization that turn into savages. Savagery is not a condition of birth. It is a choice. People born into savagery can become civilized. And those born into the highest echelons of civilization can prey on us like the worst vicious animals. The question is how do civilized societies confront savagery? Do we blame ourselves for having made the savages what they are through our capitalism and colonialism, even though they have behaved this way long before modern Western civilization amounted to anything, or do we set forth to re-educate them, to build modern nations for them and teach them to become civilized? We have sent forth our sons and daughters to make peace with them and to educate them. Our societies opened themselves to embrace and celebrate the virtues of the so-called noble savage. When we realized that we could not exist with savages, we tried to re remake our societies to serve them. All of that has been tried, and civilization is still drowning in the violence of the savages. The fundamental truth is that civilization and savagery are innately at war with one another. Savages are offended by the existence of civilization. When they see one, they want to destroy it. There can be no peace with savages because, contrary to Islam, peace is a condition of civilization. To have peace, you must be civilized. Savages don't even view peace as a value apart from the conclusion of a successful conquest which then sets the stage for the next one. Civilized people develop complex mechanisms of exchange 
But savages see no reason why they shouldn't take something or someone if they are too weak to defend themselves. No amount of lectures will ever convince a savage that anything other than clan relations should prevent him from stealing a car or raping a woman if there will be no clear consequences. That's because savages, unlike civilized people, have no conscience and therefore no soul. Islam, unlike Judaism and Christianity, is not a religion of the soul, but entirely a religion of power. From its genocidal chant, Allah Akbar, that proclaims the physical supremacy of Allah to all other religions through the military victories of its followers, everything is reduced to conquest. The truth of Islam is validated through war. When jihadists conquer and rape non-Muslims, they are proving that Islam is true and that the religions of the conquered are false as far as they are concerned. That's why ISIS jihadists would tell the Yazidi girls they were raping that the rape actually brought them closer to Allah. Civilizations have become too sophisticated and decadent to even understand such concepts. When faced with barbarism, they go down a dialectic rabbit hole that explains the savages in terms of how civilized people interacted with them. Did they hurt their feelings, overthrow their governments, or draw mean cartoons to offend them? Did capitalism leave them adrift in the world economy? How did we fail to integrate the newest generation of immigrants with all the welfare checks? These sophomore accessions are pointless. A hyena doesn't eat your chickens because you failed to integrate the hyena. That's just what hyenas do. Man at the base state is a predator, and savages strive to be the alpha predators. Civilizations become superior predators because they provide room for arts and sciences because they think about something other than how they are superior to their neighbors and will prove it by killing their sons and raping their daughters. But when civilizations spend too much time thinking, they forget that one reason they came into being was to build something better than a state of savagery. Decadent civilizations internalize all the criticism and their peoples endlessly quarrel and think that the worst possible things in the world are the ones that exist among their own people. But savages remind us otherwise. Much like a hurricane reminds us of the alternative to houses and famine reminds us of the alternative to food, savages remind us of the alternative to civilization. Unfortunately, truly decadent civilizations need constant reminders of all of these things. We have to be constantly told that food doesn't magically emerge from a supermarket, that houses are not the natural state of being, and that not being murdered by savages in your home is a new way of life. Tolerate savages, give them enough rope, and they will do all of these things to you and more. Savagery should not be confused with stupidity. Civilizations have been brought down by savages and civilizations were built by savages who became civilized. 
Savages are clever and cunning. They are alert to the weaknesses of civilized people and experts at finding ways around whatever walls and security systems that civilized people build to protect themselves. Civilizations that spend enough time allowing savages to hang around will fall. Tolerating savages is actually a sign that a civilization has turned decadent. Welcoming and advocating for savages means that the end is near. Viable civilizations drive savages away. They do it not just to protect themselves, but because banishing savages is what makes a civilization civilized. When civilizations forget what the difference between themselves and the savages are, they lose their sense of right and wrong, and they can no longer explain why savagery is wrong. When faced with the worst imaginable crimes, they can still equivocate a case for the criminals. Hamas terrorists can rape and kill their victims, and defenders will rally to explain why the issue is actually more complicated than it seems. This happens with Islamic terrorists all the time. Savages and decadent civilizations have no firm concept of right and wrong. Everything is subjectively opportunistic, and there can be scenarios in which raping a woman, killing her, and then posting a photo of her body to social media so her family can see it is actually all right. That is why civilization has to defeat savagery without equivocation, apologies, or sympathy, not only to win, but to revive its own soul. Negotiations and laws of war are for peer civilization. Savages offer nothing and so are owed nothing. They keep no agreements except when it suits them. Their word is worthless. And their morality is non-existent. A civilization that does not understand all this will learn it the hard way. Civilizations are built on the suppression of savagery, both internally and externally. When civilizations defeat savages, learning, art, science, and ideas thrive. And when civilizations allow savages to ravage them, they lose their people, their morality, and eventually their existence. No form of war is more sacred than that of civilization against savagery. It is these wars that made Christianity and Judaism, not to mention all the ideas of Western civilization, as well as those of Asia and India, possible. This is once again the defining struggle of our age. Either civilization or the savages will prevail. Any attempt at a middle ground is suicide. Our grandchildren will either make great things or they will be hunted by roaming savages like the teenage girls at a concert in Israel or those similarly hunted in venues in Europe. All the hopes of mankind depend on the utter and total defeat of the savages, not just in Israel, but in America, in Europe, in India and Asia, and around the world. This is not the struggle of any single nation, but the crisis of mankind. Either humanity will rise, 
or we will fall. And that is the great Daniel Greenfield and his article, Savages, over at Robert Spencer's Jihad Watch website. And I commend it to you. And I would, I would recommend that you share it on your social media. Share it on your Facebook. Share it on your Twitter or X or whatever it's called. Share it on whatever social media you get on. Because I'm very concerned that way too many Americans just have no idea. And so they'll be, they, they will be surprised when we face the next big attack, which we shall. I have no question. If even Kevin McCarthy says, hey, they could hit us next week, I have no question. They will do everything. They, look, uh, uh, one of the main leaders of Hamas has already said, look, Israel's just starters. We're, 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 we're not done. We're just Israel. We're coming for you guys too. When they show you who they are, Believe them. So much more coming up. I've only scratched the surface. More coming up straight ahead. If you've tried to buy a car recently, you realize you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Auto comes in. Red River Auto is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Auto wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. Red River Auto Group has perfected the online buying process. Just go to redriverauto.com and pick from hundreds of new and used vehicles. You can purchase a vehicle online if you have any questions. One of Red River's trained experts will help you through the whole process. Red River Auto makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom. The dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door, no matter where you live in the continental U.S., redriverauto.com. You'll be glad you did. I want to tell you about the best-kept secret in American healthcare. Are you having problems with sinuses and allergies? Are you experiencing dizziness, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar, fibromyalgia, eczema, psoriasis, migraines? The Arkansas Upper Cervical Center might be able to help you. Let me tell you how. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas or C1, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain. When that happens, your central nervous system isn't able to communicate with the rest of your body as it's designed to do. I had severe hay fever for five or six weeks every spring all my life and migraines year-round. When I got my atlas adjusted, the hay fever went away and the migraines went away for good. Whatever malady you're suffering from, do yourself a favor. Call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009, for a free consultation. They've helped so many people I know. Please call them to see if they can help you. That number for your free consultation is 501-279-2009. If you're outside Central Arkansas, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com. Click on the tab that says find a doctor near you, and I sure hope you can. Do you want to drop your big liberal cell phone carrier? Pay to your mobile 
America's only Christian conservative wireless carrier is the perfect solution. Patriot Mobile has exceptional nationwide coverage and uses the same towers the main carriers use. Patriot Mobile guarantees your coverage. Patriot Mobile has plans to fit any budget, along with great discounts for our veteran and first responder heroes, as well as multi-line users. And switching to Patriot Mobile usually only takes 15 to 20 minutes. When you switch to Patriot Mobile, you shift your support from the leftist progressive agendas of Big Mobile to the Christian conservative causes of Patriot Mobile. Patriot Mobile donates a portion of every dollar earned to organizations that fight for causes you care about. A portion of every dollar they earn is given back to the causes that support organizations that fight for First Amendment religious freedom, freedom of speech, Second Amendment right to bear arms, sanctity of life, and the needs of our veterans and first responders. Now more than ever, it's important to band together and support companies that share our conservative values. Switching is easy. Just do what I did. Go to PatriotMobile.com. Or call their U.S.-based customer service team at 972-PATRIOT. Make sure you use promo code DOC, that's D-O-C, for free activation. It's always interesting doing the uh, audio podcast. 99% of the people who listen, listen online after the fact. Listen at their own leisure. Every once in a while, we have a handful of people who actually listen to the live stream when we do it, no matter what time of the day or night it is. So we got a, uh, speaking of savages, we got a guy named Mo Shear who checked in. He said, if there was no occupation, there would be no Hamas. And then he said, answer my call, whatever that means, because nobody called me. And he says, stop spread propaganda lies. And I hope you will approve of my response. I said, a steaming pile of takia from Moshir. See, takia, T-A-Q-Q-I-Y-A, is an Islamic concept, which means that if you are a Muslim who lives in a predominantly non-Muslim society and you know the things about your religion which the non-Muslims would not like, then you can deny them as long as you still believe them in your heart. So I said, a steaming pile of takia from Moshir, your Quran tells you to lie to us, kafir. That's the Muslim word for infidels. I said, you fool no one. We will never be your demi. Uh, a demi, again, is D-H-I-M-M-I. That is a non-Muslim who lives under the subjugation of Muslims. I said, we will never pay the jizya. That is the tax that demis have to pay to keep from being executed by the Muslims. And then I said, go take a flying leap at yourself with a bunch of uh, exclamation marks. So um, that's how you have to deal with these people just for what it's worth. That's how you have to deal with these people. I'm looking at a picture of a beautiful family. Uh, this, this is posted by a Yale Bartor over there in Israel. The Kutz family, Aviv, Livnat, Rotem, Yonatan, and Iftak. So mom and dad and three young adult children. On Saturday, they plan to fly kites in a kite festival. The father, Aviv, organizes every year near the Gaza fence as a message of peace to their neighbors. Their charred bodies were found in the safe room of their burnt-down home in Kibbutz Kfar Aza with Aviv's body, the dad, 
wrapped over his family. Savages. Savages. This is what we are up against. Let me just tell you what my friend Mark Levin said. Mark Levin, who did me the great honor of allowing me to fill in for him 11 times on his nationally syndicated radio talk show. He said, hey, media, not a single Palestinian civilian would be killed if Hamas had not invaded and massacred Israelis. Every single civilian who dies as a result of Israel destroying Hamas is on Hamas and Iran. No question about it. So I've got this... um, Got this video of, I can't play the audio because it's in Hebrew, but I can relate to you what it says. It is a mother talking to her 10-year-old daughter, Daria. Daria and her little brother hid for hours after her hero, Father Devere, and his girlfriend were murdered trying to protect them. And... Again, Yael Bartir over there in Israel says, uh, this, is, there, this is the spirit of Israel and it's unbreakable. Don't look away. So, mother's on the phone with daughter, 10-year-old, and the daughter says, when are they coming for me? And the mother says, what, honey? When are they coming for me? I can't do it anymore is what the daughter says. The mother says, I know, but it's time for patience. You know, Daria? Sorry, this is going to be kind of tough. Uh, Ruth Karp was in Yahud on Saturday trying to calm her 10-year-old daughter, Daria, on the phone who was hiding alongside her little brother, Lavi, in the bomb shelter at Kibbutz Reim. At least you have water in the bomb shelter. Daria says, I know. And mother says, and Lavi is with you too. You're not alone, right? And her daughter Daria says, right. Daria and Lavi were staying over the weekend with Ryut's ex-husband. Devir Karp and his girlfriend Stav Daria says, Father woke me up to go to the bomb shelter, and I asked him why. He brought an axe and a knife, and he said, in case anything happens. She said, then I fell asleep, and when I woke up, I saw them taking the axe and the knife, opening the door, and running to face the terrorists, and they shot my father, and I didn't see his girlfriend anymore. And it was in front of my eyes. Now, she's with her mother by this time. She's no longer on the phone. She says, Father managed to hurt one terrorist, but they still killed him and his girlfriend. Devere and Stav were murdered trying to protect the children. Daria and Lavi witness hell and hide in bed. The little girl says, when they left, I sent mom a message. 
Mom says, Daria writes me. She's going to read the text. Mom. It's Daria. They murdered father. And starved to help. The mother says there are moments that cannot be explained. And from that moment, I was on the line with her for three hours. It was like a conversation with, with, I don't know, like from the Holocaust. She said, can you get to the water? And Daria says, yes, but the door is opened. Mom says, try. Daria says, I can't. I'll have to look at the bodies. Mom says, don't look at the bodies. Don't. I'm thinking it's not over until it's over. Because another terrorist could come and Daria keeps hearing people. She keeps hearing and she says, Mom, there's someone here. There's someone here. And I tell her not to talk. It's three hours. And most of the time, we're just breathing silently. Mommy's here. Mommy's here. Someone's coming soon. It was the worst Shabbat in my entire life. I was afraid. And then the the little girl says, I was afraid I won't see mom ever again. That I won't see anyone again. Mom says, she told me on the phone, I'm afraid to die, Mom. I'm afraid to die. Little 10-year-old girl. Her mother said, I told her, you won't die. I'm with you always. The last thing here on this video, the little girl says, Mom, Her mother says, yes, baby. She says, when are they coming for me? When are they coming for me? I can't do it anymore. I wasn't planning on getting choked up. But I'm the father of adult children who each one was 10 years old at one one time. And when you have been a parent, when you become a parent, your emotions change. Everything changes. Everything changes. Savages. Savages who must be defeated. Must be. USA Today reporting from Shafam. Kibbutz, I hope I'm pronouncing it correct, in Israel. Kibbutz is like a little collective village in Israel. An American mom, 67, spent her life advocating for Palestinian rights, and now she is a Hamas hostage. It says they exchanged text messages and emojis, brief status updates with words of encouragement. A picture of the beloved family dog, Tutsi, until no more messages came. And then Sunday Flash, an American, and her Israeli husband, Igal, vanished into the violence, presumed kidnapped by Hamas. Four days after Hamas attacked Israel, more than 100 Israelis 
and possibly dozens of foreign nationals are thought to be held captive in the Gaza Strip. At least 14 U.S. citizens have been killed. Did you know this? Has anyone told you this? Did you know this? At least 14 U.S. citizens have been killed, and an unknown number is still unaccounted for. 67-year-old Cindy Flash, originally from St. Paul, Minnesota, is one of them. She lives in Kafar Aza, a kibbutz in southern Israel, near Gaza, where some of the most harrowing and grisly stories have been emerging over the past few days. In one of her final messages to her 34-year-old daughter, Karen, she said, they are breaking down the safe room door. We need someone to come by the house right now. Karen had been communicating with her parents from a few houses away. Karen described her mother and administrator in a local college as someone who had the sweetest, biggest heart, whom everyone knew and loved, and who had spent a lifetime advocating for the rights of Palestinians, including those who lived in Gaza, where she may now be held. Her daughter said Tuesday on the grounds of a sprawling hotel and resort on a coastal kibbutz northeast of Tel Aviv, where hundreds of people were evacuated after the attack, they didn't deserve this. No one deserves this. By the way, the resort was filled with volunteers bringing sandwiches and sweet cakes, sobbing teenagers. Reunited after days of having their worst fears confirmed, hugged one another tightly. Small groups of people sat at tables, hunched over laptops, compiling, compiling lists of the missing. A manager said about 300 people from Kafar Aza we're staying at the hotel before the attack. Afaraza had a population of eight, about 800. Nobody knows for sure how many survived. Yeah, no way of telling. Did you know that they've been having celebrations in big cities all over the world, in the United States, Australia, Europe, celebrating the bloodshed? Had you heard about that? Yes. Big celebrations celebrating the bloodshed you can't make it up george washington university pro jihad protesters we'll play the audio from that we refuse to be subjected to this dehumanization any longer. Every Palestinian is a citizen, is a civilian, even if they hold arms. Every settler is an aggressor, a soldier, and an occupier, even if they are lounging on our occupied beaches. As the IOF calls up thousands of reserved soldiers, it is clear that all settlers are soldiers. There exists a colonizer and a colonized, an oppressor and the oppressor. The people cannot be dissociated from resistance because we are in a constant state of resistance. Do you hear this garbage? Do you hear this garbage? Don't look away. Don't look away. This is how they justify the murder of the innocents. This is how they justify the rape of the teenage girls. This is how they justify decapitating babies in their cribs. Every. Did you catch that? The word every? Oh, yeah. Muslims 
at the Opera House in Sydney, Australia. You hear this chant? Gas the Jews? But people ask, how could this have happened? You know? I mean, Israel's got the Iron Dome, they got the walls. How could this have happened? Robert Spencer takes a stab at it at his Jihad Watch website. October 11th, column called The Careful Campaign of Deception Ensured Israel was caught off guard when Hamas began jihad massacres. He quotes from the Bukhari Hadith. You see, the, the Muslims have more than the Quran. They have these other books they think of as holy books also. According to a Hadith, Muhammad said, war is deceit. And he has an embedded tweet here from Faraz Pervez. On October 9th, Israeli city of Ashdod after massive rocket barrage. And he has embedded a story from Reuters from October 9th. How Hamas duped Israel as it planned a devastating attack. A careful campaign of deception ensured Israel was caught off guard when the Palestinian Islamist group Hamas launched its devastating attack, enabled, enabling a force using bulldozers, hang gliders, and motorbikes to take on the Middle East's most powerful army. Saturday's assault, the worst breach in Israel's defenses since Arab armies waged war in 1973, followed two years of subterfuge by Hamas that involved keeping its military plans under wraps and convincing Israel it did not want a fight. While Israel was led to believe it was containing a war-weary Hamas by providing economic incentives to workers from Gaza, Hamas's fighters were being trained and drilled, often in plain sight, according to a source close to Hamas. The source provided many of the details for the account of the attack and its buildup that has been pieced together by the Reuters wire agency. Three sources within Israel's security establishment who, like others, asked not to be identified, also contributed to this account. The source close to Hamas said, Hamas gave Israel the impression that it was not ready for a fight. The source described plans for the most startling assault since the Yom Kippur War 50 years ago when Egypt and Syria surprised Israel and made it fight for its very survival. The source said Hamas used an unprecedented intelligence tactic to mislead Israel over the last months by giving a public impression that it was not willing to go into a fight or confrontation with Israel while preparing for the massive operation. Israel concedes it was caught off guard by an attack timed to coincide with the Jewish Sabbath and a religious holiday. Hamas fighters stormed into Israeli towns, 
killing 700 Israelis and abducting dozens. Well, it's over 1,000 now. Israel has killed more than 400 Palestinians in his retaliation on Gaza since then. I'm sure it's a lot more than that now. Major Nir Dinar, spokesperson for the IDF, Israeli Defense Forces, said, this is our 9-11, they got us. They surprised us and they came fast from many spots, both from the air and the ground and the sea. So that is the story that is being put out there. By the way, Jihad Watch also reporting Joe Biden's Iran hostage swap allows Iranian agents to remain in the United States. Why does this not surprise me? About the hideous dementia Joe. Did you see Black Lives Matter put out a tweet and a Facebook post with a drawing of the Palestinians coming in on hang gliders saying, I stand with Palestine, so Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. They stand with those who would decapitate babies in their cribs. That's your Black Lives Matter. The National Deputy Director of the Council on American-Islamic Relations, CARE, accuses Israel of racism, kidnapping, and wantonly killing Palestinian civilians. Really? Again, they're supposed to lie to us, aren't they? And you believe their lies at your peril. They're supposed to lie to us. It is an outrage. It is an absolute outrage. Now we're going to be hearing that Israel is bad because they are going overboard on their response to the murders. We're going to be hearing this. Well, let me share something with you. Joel B. Pollock over at Breitbart. Article entitled Proportionality, Why International Law Gives Israel a Freer Hand Against Hamas. And he says, In the coming days there will be claims that Israel is inflicting disproportionate casualties on Palestinians in Gaza. as it responds to the terror attack by Iran-backed Hamas this weekend on the Jewish holiday of Shemini Atzeret. Speaking of last weekend, but it keeps going. Activists and analysts will compare casualty figures in Israel. Now passing 600 dead. This was written on October 8th. It's over 100. It's over 1,000 now. And 2,000 wounded with casualty figures in Gaza. Already left-wing critics of Israel have tried to equate the numbers of dead on each side. Such comparisons overlook the fact that Palestinian terrorists targeted civilians who account for the majority of Israeli dead while the Israeli military is targeting terrorists who are typically the vast majority of Palestinian dead. Moreover, Hamas and other Palestinian terror groups 
Use civilians as human shields, hiding weapons, fighters, and infrastructure in civilian buildings so that even if Israel attacks these sites, Palestinians claim a propaganda victory. Palestinian deaths will continue to rise as Israel invades Gaza to attack Hamas and rescue Israeli civilians. Israeli casualties will likely stop climbing provided Hezbollah does not open a second front by attacking from Lebanon. That will lead to claims that Israel is killing disproportionate numbers of Palestinian civilians, but that's a false use of the doctrine of proportionality in international law. Under, this is important. Listen to me. Under international law, while civilian casualties are to be avoided, they may be lawful in wartime if the number of deaths is proportionate relative to the legitimate military goal, not to the number of deaths on the other side. This war is different from past conflicts between Israel and Hamas. Previously, Israel's military goal was to stop and deter Hamas attacks on Israeli cities. Now the goal is to remove Hamas from Gaza, and it is a legitimate goal, though it will be harder to achieve and will result in more deaths. Ultimately, responsibility for Palestinian civilian deaths rests with Hamas and Iran, who launched this conflict. Israel will likely do what it has done in previous conflicts, call off airstrikes where civilians are spotted, warn residents of imminent missile strikes, and place its own soldiers at risk rather than wipe out entire areas. But in terms of international law, Israel has far more leeway than it did before, though its critics will claim otherwise. Joel B. Pollack, senior editor-at-large at Breitbart News, his article about proportionality. Speaking of Breitbart, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan refused on Tuesday to commit to freezing the $6 billion of his uh, of Iranian funds that the United States unfroze before Hamas attacked Israel. Yeah, Breitbart has the article. White House refuses to freeze Iran $6 billion. A report asked Jake Sullivan, this guy's the National Security Advisor. A reporter asked Jake Sullivan during a press conference, you just laid out all the ways that Iran is complicit and facilitated it. Is that reason enough to refreeze the $6 billion that the U.S. helped unlock for them? Jake Sullivan replied, we have not yet had a dollar of that $6 billion spent, and I will leave it at that. Oh, this guy. This guy probably belongs under the jail himself. I'm not going to give him any more time. This is outrageous. But again, again, I have only begun to fight. I have only scratched the surface. There's so much more coming up straight ahead. Mike Lindell says because of your amazing support for MyPillow 2.0, he's expanded MyPillow's USA manufacturing and jobs. So he's clearing out his percale bed sheets by giving them to you at closeout prices. King size percale bed sheets, only $39 a set. 
Queen size, only $35 a set. Full size, $29, and twin size, just $25. Use promo code DWS to take advantage of this once-in-a-lifetime offer. Right now, Mike's biggest My Slippers closeout sale ever is on. Get Mike's all-season My Slippers and Sandals at clearance prices. Mike's all-season moccasin slippers are just $25. Mike's My Slipper Sandals are just $19.50. They're both made with Mike's patented impact gel that absorbs and relieves pressure so you can comfortably wear them all day long. Just use promo code DWS for huge discounts. Remember, DWS stands for Doc Washburn Show. MyPillow.com, quantities are extremely limited at these amazing prices, so please order now. Just use promo code DWS. You know, the great Ronald Reagan once said, inflation is as violent as a mugger, as frightening as an armed robber, and as deadly as a hitman. Have you thought about the benefits of investing in precious metals? Here are five profound benefits. Number one, investing in precious metals is a hedge against inflation. Number two, it's a great way to diversify your portfolio. Number three, asset liquidity. Number four, precious metals tend to be a store of value. They don't tend to depreciate over the long haul. And last but not least, number five, precious metals can be a hedge against geopolitical uncertainty and the struggling U.S. dollar. Andrew Sorcini with Beverly Hills Precious Metals has been involved in gold and silver for over 40 years. Beverly Hills Precious Metals brings precious metals to the homes of everyday American citizens. Mike Flynn told us about them, and they are our gold buyer of choice. To find out more, just Google Beverly Hills Precious Metals. Make sure you ask about the general Mike Flynn silver coin and tell them Doc Washburn sent you. Beverly Hills Precious Metals helps folks protect their finances, wealth, and investments. Let me ask you something. Why continue shopping big box stores if you can get the items you need from a family-owned company? Now you can get around this crazy inflation by shopping Factory Direct at a family-owned, made-in-America manufacturer. Americans are walking away from the big box conglomerates and deciding to buy only USA. Join with fellow patriots to cut off the cash flow of the big woke corporations that are trying to destroy our country. These products include fresh American-raised beef, raised in the Montana mountains near Yellowstone. This beef is known as never ever. Never has the animal ever been exposed to antibiotics, hormones, or vaccines. This prime or high-choice beef is shipped directly to your door. Pricing and availability is exclusive only to our members, and isn't shipped anywhere else in the world. Let's start voting with our dollars to make sure our purchases are supporting companies that promote freedom. Email us at buyonlyusa at proton.me, and I'll have one of my guys contact you. Buyonlyusa at proton.me. Let me go back to Noah Pollack. Over the free press. And a column that he wrote Saturday, October 7th. As the reality of the gruesome nature of the murders of Hamas. Murdering innocent people. It was beginning to weigh on him. He had an article entitled, Today is Israel's. 9-11. Subtitle, the terrorists went house to house. They maimed, they murdered, they mutilated. 
And he said, I'm going to describe the images coming out of Israel over the last 12 hours. I don't want to believe any of them are real because they are horrifying among the most gruesome scenes of mutilation, murder, and abduction imaginable. But there is now going to be a war between Israel and Hamas. He called it last Saturday. And possibly a broader regional war. Israel will invade Gaza. As we speak, Israelis my age are being called up to war. Some of them are my friends. And I think Noah is, is probably at least in his 40s, if not 50s. He says, within two or three days, the media narrative will change as it does every time. And the grisly invasion that started the war quickly will be minimized into a half sentence of euphemistic dishonesty and press accounts like an incursion by Gaza-based militants so that the focus can be turned around to prosecuting Israel. This is part of why everyone needs to know about the images, the ones you won't see if you turn on MSNBC or the BBC today, because so much of the media and Western foreign policy officialdom do not want to embarrass the Palestinians by showing the sadistic brutality of Hamas. They do not want to undermine the coming effort to pressure Israel to stop fighting. They do not want people to notice the role of Iran in the war and how it is fueled by an appallingly dangerous Biden administration policy toward the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism. So, that is why you need to know. When Hamas invaded Israel this morning, Terrorists streamed across the border in pickup trucks by motorcycle, on foot, and even on paragliders. Once inside Israel, they abducted and murdered Israelis. They shot people in cars and at bus stops. They rounded up women and children into rooms like Einsatzgruppen. Yes, the comparison is appropriate. And machine gunned them. Now, I'm looking at this. I'm going, Einsatzgruppen, what is that? Einsatzgruppen were units of the security police and SS intelligence service that followed the German army as it invaded and occupied countries in Europe, often referred to as mobile killing squads. They are best known for their role in the systematic murder of Jews in mass shooting operations on Soviet territory. Yes, definitely. The comparison is appropriate. They rounded up women and children into rooms like Einsatzgruppen and machine gunned them. They went house to house to find and murder civilians hiding in their closets, and they dragged the bloody, dead bodies of Israelis back into Gaza, where they are now being paraded, beaten, and mutilated in front of exultant crowds. One young woman was murdered and stripped to her underwear, and their corpse was thrown in the back of a pickup truck so it could be paraded around Gaza while young men from Hamas beat and mutilated her body. Hamas terrorists attacked a music festival in the desert. Dozens of people were killed and injured, and many more are missing. Footage shows young Israelis running for their lives. Well, now we know the number is at least 260. But again, he wrote this the day of. Small Israeli towns and kibbutzim near the Gaza border 
were turned into scenes reminiscent of ISIS in Syria with gangs of terrorists riding through the streets in pickup trucks, shooting anything that moved. And then there are the Israelis who have been abducted and taken to Gaza as hostages. How many of them dead and alive are there? We don't know. But if the number of appalling videos and heartbreaking social media posts from people looking for missing family members are anything to go by, the figure is without precedent in Israeli history. These images and videos are repulsive, but they must be seen and understood to comprehend what is coming next. He says, I now live in Los Angeles, far away from Israel, but from 2006 to 2008, I lived in Jerusalem. My regular travel there in the years that followed overlapped with all the Gaza wars except the most recent one. He says, I was there from the for the 2006 Lebanon war, much of which I spent with the IDF at the front in the north for the first Gaza war in 08, and then for the battles in 2012 and 2014, the memories of air raid sirens hurrying into bomb shelters. And when that got boring, watching from Tel Aviv rooftops as Iron Dome shot down rockets are still vivid. But those memories seem quaint compared to today's horror. What is happening right now is as different from those battles as USS Cole built bombing was different from 9-11. Today is Israel's 9-11. It feels strange to say this about a country where terrorist attacks have been a regular feature of national life, and I'm conscious of the tendency to over-Americanize events in the Middle East, but it really is the right analogy. Just as in pre-9-11 America, Israel has been consumed by domestic controversies while assuming the world beyond was, if not stable, at least predictable. Just as in the U.S., Israel has been caught completely by surprise. And just as in America on 9-11, Israeli families are searching desperately for any news about their missing loved ones. But these are only the small similarities. The horror is highly cinematic. This is almost certainly the highest civilian casualty from a single attack in Israel's history, just as 9-11 was for the U.S. The meaningful similarity is the feeling of national humiliation, vulnerability, and fear Provoked by the attack, the most powerful country in the Middle East, with an, an, an intelligence service that can assassinate Iranian nuclear scientists at will, with F-35s and spy satellites was just bested by men who simply jogged across the border with rifles. Americans after 9-11 did not feel that the country was weak. They, we felt the bewilderment and rage of vulnerability despite our strength. This is what Israelis are feeling today. I've been up all night on group chats with my old friends in Israel, most of them veterans of the IDF, and their mood is grim, grim and outraged with much of the anger directed toward their own leaders. As the story evolved from rocket attacks to border incursion to invasion to hostage-taking to ISIS roaming the city of Sterot, we felt waves of the kind of disbelief mixed with horror I hadn't felt since seeing the Twin Towers collapse live on television. The questions this attack poses are very simple. How could this happen? How did Israeli authorities fail so completely? The result of this war will probably be legacy-defining for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. 
He presided over several rounds of conflict with Hamas and was always reluctant to topple the group, kill its leaders, or get pulled into a prolonged stay in Gaza. Israel has now been dragged into Gaza, and it is indisputably due in part to strategic choices Netanyahu made in the past. And then he has uh, an embedded photo here. Horrifying photo shows Israelis being abducted and taken to Gaza as hostages. How many of them dead and alive are there? And he continues, but the accounting of what went wrong will come later. Right now, there is a war to fight. While we don't yet know the full scope of its objectives, overthrow Hamas, reoccupy Gaza, disarm Hamas and leave, bomb and fight for a few weeks and agree to another ceasefire. No Israeli government that wants to stay in power can treat this like the past 15 years of Gaza conflicts. There also needs to be an accounting here in America of our role in setting the table for this disaster. Today should mark the end of the Biden administration's dishonorable effort to re-enter the Iran nuclear deal and a string of disgraceful and one-sided concessions to Hamas's biggest backer. Biden gave Iran access to money, most recently $6 billion that had been frozen in South Korean banks. Since the administration came into office, it has been pouring money into Gaza aid projects, knowing full well that Iran's client terrorist group, Hamas, is fully in control of the territory and would benefit from the help. In fact, Biden officials put it in writing in recently leaked documents that they knew Hamas would benefit from the money they were sending, and they sent it anyway. This assault on Israel, in many ways, was more psychologically shocking than the Egyptian and Syrian surprise attack during Yom Kippur in 1973. Back then, the fighting was conventional and took place on Israel's borders, far out on the Golan and in the Sinai. There were no Syrian and Egyptian terrorists machine-gunning civilians in the streets of Israeli cities or dragging bloodied women and children across the border. This is why Israel's response is likely to be very different than it has been in every previous round of fighting. For 15 years, Hamas has been well aware that Israeli strategy has not sought an end to its rule over Gaza. This is why we never saw the IDF raid the basement of Shifa Hospital in Gaza City, which functions as Hamas headquarters during conflict. And it's why we've never seen Mossad assassinate Hamas leaders who live openly and in luxury in Doha as admired guests of the government of Qatar. This principle, keep Hamas in power so Israel doesn't end up having to rule Gaza, which Israeli governments have always refrained from stating plainly, has been the defining feature of the conflict since 2008. It's hard to see how Israelis will accept the continued presence of an Iranian terror group in Gaza. It's hard to see how Israel or the region goes back to normal. As on 9-11, today the world changed. That is Noah Pollack, Los Angeles-based political consultant. Over at the Free Press, his article from the day the attack started, 
October 7th, entitled Today is Israel's 9-11. Now, I'll take you back to Jihad Watch again. Robert Spencer, as soon as I tell you what Laura Logan said on Sunday, October 8th, over on Twitter, she said the United States funded a war against its number one ally, Israel. They did it through Iran, a regime that is not only an avowed enemy of this country, it is also the number one state sponsor of terrorism in the world and has been for decades. Iran, through its proxy, Hamas, struck at a time when both of its top enemies, the U.S. and Israel, are deeply divided from within thanks to the global cult that is orchestrating chaos to justify a new world ordered the way they see fit. Don't ever forget this. Don't ever forget this. Robert Spencer, Jihad Watch. Article entitled, Hamas Jihadi Admits True Motive for Kidnapping Women and Children. He has an embedded tweet here from a guy named Hananya Naftali. And Hananya Naftali is a media personality over in Israel. 319,000 followers on Twitter. I'm going to have to follow him too and add him to my list of people I try to keep track of. But his um, his article, his embedded tweet in Robert Spencer's article, has a video of one of these Hamas jihadists being interrogated. And I don't understand Hebrew, and I don't understand Arabic, so I'll just tell you what the tweet says. Just when you think it can't get worse, a Hamas terrorist admits their true motive for kidnapping women and children is rape. Robert Spencer says the Quran teaches that infidel women can be lawfully taken for sexual use. It's allowance for a man to take captives of the right hand. Quran chapter 4 verse 3, chapter 4 verse 24, chapter 23 verses 1 through 6, chapter 33 verse 50, chapter 70 verse 30. The Quran says that a man may have sex with his wives and with these slave girls. Quran 23, verses 1 through 6. The believers must win through those who humble themselves in their prayers, who avoid vain talk, who are active in deeds of charity, who abstain from sex except with those joined to them in the marriage bond, or the captives whom their right hands possess, For in their case, they are free from blame. Free from blame. Robert Spencer continues, the rape of captive women is also sanctioned in Islamic tradition. And he has this quote from, again, one of the Hadith, one of their so-called holy books in Islam, Sahih Muslim, 3371. It says, Abu Surma said to Abu Sa'id al-Qadri, Allah be pleased with him. O Abu Sayyid, did you hear Allah's messenger, may peace be upon him, mentioning Al-Azul, 
He said yes and added, We went out with Allah's messenger, may peace be upon him, on the expedition to the Bil Mustalik and took captive some excellent Arab women, and we desired them, for we were suffering from the absence of our wives. But at the same time, but at the same time, we also desired ransom for them. So we decided to have sexual intercourse with them, but by observing Azul, which gets into a very graphic description of sex that I'm not going to. I can't. But we said we are doing an act whereas Allah's messenger is amongst us. Why not ask him? So we asked Allah's messenger, may peace be upon him, and he said, it does not matter if you do not do it for every soul that is to be born up to the day of resurrection will be born. Again, Robert Spencer continues, it is also in Islamic law, and he quotes from another hadith, Umdat al-Salik 9.13, when a child or a woman is taken captive, they become slaves by the fact of capture and the woman's previous marriage is immediately annulled. The Egyptian Sheikh Abu Ishaq al-Hawaini declared in May 2011 that, quote, we are in the era of jihad, unquote, and that meant Muslims would take slaves. In a subsequent interview, this same Egyptian Sheikh said, jihad is only between Muslims and infidels. Spoils, slaves, and prisoners are only to be taken in war between Muslims and infidels. Muslims in the past conquered, invaded, and took over countries. This is agreed to by all scholars. There's no disagreement on this from any of them. From the smallest to the largest. On the issue of taking spoils and prisoners, the prisoners and spoils are distributed among the fighters, which includes men, women, children, wealth, and so on. When a slave market is erected, which is a market in which are sold slaves and sex slaves, which are called in the Quran by the name Milk al-Yamen, that which your right hand possesses. This is the verse from the Quran, which is still in force and has not been abrogated. The Milk al-Yamen are the sex slaves. You go to the market, look at the sex slave and buy her. She becomes like your wife, but she doesn't need a marriage contract or a divorce like a free woman, nor does she need a wali, whatever that means. All scholars agree on this point. There's no disagreement from any of them. When I want a sex slave, I just go to the market and choose the woman I like and purchase her. That is a sheikh in Egypt. By the way, did you know, did you know that after Obama and Hillary sent in ISIS to kill the dictator Gaddafi in Libya in the aftermath The Muslim terrorists, the jihadists, the ISIS, or whatever you want to call the group that's in charge now in Libya, set up open-air slave markets in Libya where they sell a lot of black Africans from sub-Sahara Africa. Oh, yeah. Around the same time, May 25th, 2011, Robert Spencer says a female politician in Kuwait, Sawa al-Mutari, also spoke out in favor of the Islamic practice of sexual slavery of non-Muslim women, emphasizing that the practice accorded with Islamic law and the parameters of Islamic morality. And it goes on and on and on. 
In January 2016, a female Al-Azhar professor, Al-Azhar University in Cairo is the biggest and most widely respected Islamic university in the world. In January 2016, a female professor at Al-Azhar stated, and they have the link here, that Allah allows Muslim to rape non-Muslim women in order to humiliate them. You know, when I read this article and uh, I read quotes from their so-called holy books, which are perverse, which are anything but actually holy, and we know this, and it says, peace be upon him, it grates on me. It grates on me. Because there is no peace upon a Muhammad. If he actually existed, he is in the torments of hell. If he actually existed, if there actually was a Muhammad, and I'm not sure whether there was or not. Because Robert Spencer wrote a book a few years ago pointing out something that I had no idea about. The fact that if you look at history, In the first 70 years of the Arabs coming out of Saudi Arabia and sweeping across North Africa and taking one Christian country after another, there was no mention of Muhammad in the first 70 years of the history. But if there was a Muhammad, if he actually existed, he is on the receiving end of God's unmitigated wrath. So there is no peace upon Muhammad. You can say whatever you want, but I'm just telling you the truth. All right, so I want to I want to go to an article now from tabletmag.com tabletmag.com Lee Smith Article entitled, Why the Iran Deal Matters. And he says, how did we get here? The current state of affairs began when Joe Biden's former boss, Barack Obama, legalized a terror state's nuclear weapons program. Despite what its publicists claimed, the purpose of the deal, officially known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, was never to stop Iran from getting the bomb, rather the tens of billions of dollars that Obama paid the clerical regime of Iran, which included plane loads of cash, was actually facilitate construction of the nuclear weapons program under the protective umbrella of an international agreement backed by the United States of America, even a cursory glance at the agreement's clauses. Restricting Iranian nuclear and other activities reveals the truth. They are called sunset clauses because they were designed to expire. And once they expired... Iran's industrial-sized nuclear weapons program would be entirely legal under the continuing protection of the United States. No, no. 
No, no, advocates and defenders of JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. The Iran deal was constructed to prevent Iran from ever getting a bomb. That's what you say, isn't it? Isn't that what you say? At the time Obama proposed his plan, it seemed inconceivable that he would mislead Americans about something as serious as legalizing the nuclear weapons program of a terrorist state that has been killing Americans since its inception in 1979. Well, I didn't think it was inconceivable. But Lee Smith says, surely Obama had some, some more conventional idea of arms control in mind. His critics must be conspiracy theorists projecting their own pyromania onto the righteous President Obama, probably because they were racist or Zionists or both. The Iranian immigrants and Saudi analysts who expressed their shock at the idea of giving Iran the bomb must have their own local axes to grind. Yeah, that's it. That's a ticket. Nearly a decade after the selling of the Iran deal, it's much easier now for Americans to see that it was the origin point in a series of hugely consequential lies that have shaped our country at home as surely as they have shaped the lives of people in the Middle East. They lied about Obama's successor being a Russian spy to delegitimize the Trump government and divide the country in the hope of removing an elected president from office. They lied about a so-called insurrection January 6, 2021, to justify designating half the country as domestic terrorists in order to put their political opponents in jail. They lied about so many things because they're certain that their communications infrastructure, where intelligence officers direct big tech and censor what was once America's independent press, will shape the information space on their behalf effectively controlling what we see, hear, and read. They first built their echo chamber to sell the idea that the Iran deal would stop Iran from getting a bomb. Now the echo chamber is everywhere. A high-tech version of how the press is run in countries like Egypt or Iran. Obama wanted to give Iran the bomb in the context of a larger realignment of U.S. interests with those of the Islamic Republic of Iran. If you've seen any of the videos on social media, of Hamas operatives dragging Jews out of their homes and shooting them, you can see what that means. Obama admired Hamas's Iranian patron, Qasem Soleimani, peace be not upon him, who ran Iran's expeditionary unit, the Quds Force, until the Trump administration killed him. Obama told Gulf Arab U.S. allies They should get their own Quds force, but they didn't, which is partly why Obama downgraded relations with America's traditional Arab allies and moved Iran into the top spot. Obama wanted Iran's hard men and their terror assets to manage U.S. regional interests so that the United States could leave the Middle East and pivot to Asia. Though, as it turned out, China and its friends in Washington had their own ideas about American dominance there, but there was also an important domestic reason to get Iran the bomb, which was to normalize 
pathology. See, if you treat a nation state that embodies Jew hatred as an ally and you arm it with a bomb, you are legitimizing Jew hatred, which is perhaps the dominant form that psychopathy takes in modern global politics. To believe that Jews secretly ruled the world, that the invisible hand of the elders of Zion tilts the world like gravity in favor of the Jews, and that mankind's dignity can only be restored if the Jews are disempowered or eliminated, is a pathological belief, one that is shared by billions of people around the globe as well as by a stunning assortment of psychopaths with designs on power. Obama rejected that characterization, acknowledging that the regime was anti-Semitic. But, but, as he told the journalists, anti-Semitism doesn't preclude you from being rational about the need to keep your economy afloat. It doesn't preclude you from making strategic decisions about how you stay in power. Well, that's just your average high-stakes undergraduate bull session answer in which the winning move is to rationalize Jew hatred through the back door. Yeah, yeah, you can be an anti-Semite and still be rational, but then Obama went a step further and suggested that maybe anti-Semitism could itself be rational. Did you know that? He talked about the Iranians using anti-Semitic rhetoric as an organizing tool. That's a quote, by the way. The latter part of Obama's answer was incredibly revealing. Of course, anti-Semites don't see anti-Semitism as an organizing tool, meaning as a rational device to achieve a rational end. Anti-Semitism is many things, a conspiracy theory, a passion, but rationality is not, is not one of its characteristics. The anti-Semites you come across on social media aren't trying to win followers or organize people. They just hate Jews. They're proud of their beliefs and eager to tell the whole world that they just hate Jews. No, the kind of person who sees anti-Semitism as a so-called organizing tool is someone who would use it that way. In other words, Obama's comment was revealing because he wasn't speaking about the Iranian regime. He was talking about his own bad self. It's hard to look into another's heart to discern their true feelings about others, but we know that Obama believes anti-Semitism to be a useful organizing tool because he said so himself. The Iran deal was more than a foreign policy blunder or a bad deal. Listen to me. It was the device that Obama consciously used to transform America. It unleashed the Iranians and their terror assets abroad. At home, it sidelined the Jews, pushing them out of the places they had carved out for themselves in American life and relegating them to second-class status in the Democratic Party, where in order to belong, they would now have to pledge allegiance to the idea of gifting nuclear weapons to a country that pledged to exterminate them. In turn... The reason that Obama had to push out the Jews is because they are one of the touchstones of American exceptionalism. 
like Israel, like the Jews, America is a nation built since its founding on the idea of a covenant with God. Just as Christians have no evidence that Jesus is real or that God acts in history without the historical reality of the Jews. Yeah, because the New Testament is is, is based on the Old Testament. Never forget that. America grounds its unique self-conception in history through Israel. Like the Jews, we are one of a kind with a unique God-given destiny. Obama's transformation of America was to remake it in his own image by junking the idea that America is exceptional and dissolving the country's borders with the rest of the world. In his mind, America is not unique. It's as sinful as any other nation. He He was effectively arguing that and possibly worse. What better way to make that point than by throwing Israel overboard and replacing it with Iran, a country that preaches God's retribution against America. Now that the Israel part of Obama's dream has been achieved, we should all be prepared for the other shoe to drop, the violence he unleashed in Israel will be coming to these shores now. Y'all, I keep on trying to tell you. I keep on trying to tell you. They're just warming up for us. Are we ready? I mean, Obama and Biden have done everything they been able to do to try to weaken our military, to try to weaken our country, to try to weaken all of us. They have. Are we ready? I don't think this country is ready. I honestly don't think this country is ready. It is... uh, it is horrifying to me. It is absolutely horrifying to me. So I want to go to Robert Spencer again over at uh, Jihad Watch. Some updates he has. Here's a, here's a quote from the top dog of Hamas over at Memory, the uh, Middle East Translation Service, top dog of Hamas, quoting the Koran, telling Muslims to kill them wherever you find them. By the way, I don't know if you notice or not, but the liberals out there, as soon as Hamas attacked Israel, they called for an immediate ceasefire. They did not want Israel to fight back at all. Fatah, one of the other jihad groups over there, quoting the Koran as it calls on Palestinians, so-called Palestinians, there's no such thing as the country of Palestine, it calls on so-called Palestinians to slaughter everyone who is Israeli by Allah, this is jihad. Did you know this? It is outrageous to me. 
And like I said when I started the show, I am feeling cold fury at the, the cruelty, the savagery, and the people coming out to support it. They want you dead. The Muslims who are out there celebrating this and rallies all over the place. So I'm over at uh, Jihad Watch, Hugh Fitzgerald, on the on the ninth on Monday. Monday morning, notes on the war. He said, on Saturday, October 7th, I began monitoring as many different news programs as I could to see how they covered Hamas' attack and Israel's response. I started by listening to the BBC coverage of the war. The BBC, I noticed, consistently underreported Israeli casualties. When the rest of the news sources online had already been reporting the 200 Israelis had been killed, the BBC's Julian Marshall reported that at least 100 Israelis had been killed. The real number, as of 5 p.m. Eastern Time, when he broadcast, had already reached 250, as other news sites were then starting to report. Those killed were overwhelmingly civilians murdered in cold blood as Hamas gunmen came across them as they raced through towns and villages in southern Israel on jeeps, motorcycles, automobiles, and on foot. They murdered 260 people at a music festival. They murdered mothers with their children on the street and in their houses. They tricked Israelis into opening the doors of their safe rooms and then murdered them. It was clear that the victims were overwhelmingly civilians, but this was not made clear in any of the reports from non-Israeli sources where it was simply reported that both soldiers and civilians were killed without any attempt to verify or report that the vast majority were civilians. As of October 8, 3 p.m. Eastern, there was confirmation that 700 Israelis had been killed and that the IDF knew of 44 soldiers who had been killed. These two figures suggest 94% of all those killed were civilians. Okay, so next, he says, the same BBC announcer, Julian Marshall, interviewed both Israelis and Palestinians on his news show. You see, he wanted to have voices from what he called both sides. This means he sought not the truth, but he sought balance. Imagine if the BBC had been reporting during World War II in a balanced manner rather than a truthful one. The Israeli journalist Marshall chose to interview, presumably representing the Israeli side, was Gideon Levy, a far-left journalist who writes for the far-left Haaretz. Asked to explain the surprise attack, Levy said it was a long time coming because when you have people, quote, locked up, blockaded for 17 years, unquote, or words to that effect, what do you expect? He said, Gaza is an open-air prison. Levy also mentioned the so-called occupation of Gaza. 
Now, BBC journalist Julian Marshall did not point out, as he should have, that there is no longer any occupation of the Gaza Strip. Not a single Israeli civilian or soldier has been living in Gaza since 2005. Nor did he say, as he ought to have, that Israel's is a most porous blockade. No humanitarian items, food or medicines, have been blockaded all these years. The items that are kept out of Gaza are dual-use items, such as steel, cement, and tin, that can be used to build weapons, terror tunnels, rocket launchers, and bunkers for fighters. Nor did BBC reporter Julian Marshall remind listeners that Egypt, too, has a blockade of, of Gaza. Next, many news programs reported that Israel had bombed the 14-story Palestine Tower in Gaza that then completely collapsed and showed the video of its demolishment, but they referred to it as containing only apartments. They failed to note what Israel had announced to explain that choice of target that the Palestine Tower had housed Hamas offices as well as apartments. Only two of the news stories I heard about the bombing included the important information that Israel had given a warning to the inhabitants to leave a full 10 minutes before the IAF struck the building. And only one of the many news reports about the Palestine Towers or the Palestine Tower included the information that there was not a single Palestinian killed or wounded in that strike. Surely both items of information would have made clear how Israel constantly tries, through its warning, Palestinians to leave places about to be targeted to minimize civilian casualties. Next, reports on the BBC and on American networks on the evening of October 7th included this remark, quote, Hamas fired thousands of rockets into Israel today, unquote. Israel said Hamas fired 2,200 rockets. Hamas said it had fired 5,000. Why didn't the news networks provide both figures and where they came from so the listeners could decide for themselves which to believe? Next, Twitter, or X, the plaything of Elon Musk, has been running interference for Hamas by taking down its most ghastly videos that show gleeful Hamas fighters delightedly driving trucks piled high with Israeli bodies while there is much alu akbaring by the bloodlusty Bezonians and, Gaz- and Gazan children are seen passing around candy in celebration. Now, most of that is gone. One such video showing the body of a murdered Israeli girl stripped of her clothes continued to stay up until Sunday but has now been taken down. The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, CBC, has sent out to all members of its new staff a directive that includes the following. Please do not describe 2005 as the end of the occupation, and please do not describe militants, soldiers, or anyone else as terrorists. The BBC also uses the phrase Hamas militants. The word terrorist has not been used, as far as I know, in any BBC report on the matter nor has it been used by the New York Times, the Washington Post, or the Guardian. Why not? The United States, France, Germany, the UK, and Canada have all unequivocally condemned Hamas and expressed full support for Israel. Foreign Policy Chief of the European Union, Joseph Borrell, 
said, this horrific violence must stop immediately. Terrorism and violence solve nothing. The EU expresses its solidarity with Israel in these difficult moments, but only massive violence by Israel will solve the problem of Hamas. He doesn't say that, does he? No, 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 no. In the only way possible, by destroying it. Anyone who calls for a halt to violence at this point, even while expressing sympathy for Israel, is denying Israel the right to protect itself by killing those who murdered over a thousand of civilians and soldiers and kidnapped a hundred more. UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Volker Turk, on Saturday made the right noises. He said civilians must never be the target of attack, pointing to reports that Israelis have been taken hostage. He said, I'm shocked and appalled at reports this morning that hundreds, possibly thousands of indiscriminate rockets have been fired by Palestinian armed groups toward Israel and that at least 22 Israelis in the first hours have been killed and hundreds injured. But then he undid that by calling on Israel not to retaliate. He said, I call for an immediate stop to the violence and appeal to all sides and key countries in the region to de-escalate to avoid further bloodshed. But you're not expressing solidarity with Israel if you ask Israel to refrain from violence now after hundreds of its citizens, over a thousand now, have been murdered. In Iran, without whose help Hamas could never have launched such a massive attack, there are celebrations in major cities where children passed out candy to Alu Akbaring crowds. These ghoulish celebrations were not shown on any Western network. Few of the reports mentioned that Iran necessarily had to have been involved. Though on CNN, at least one of the guests, a retired American general, mentioned the indispensable role that Iran must have played in Hamas's attacks. And the BBC's Paul Henley did raise the issue of Iran's role in a question to an Israeli guest. On a very few news programs, there was discussion about the roots of the problem that led Hamas to act as it did. Many talking heads limited themselves to saying that over the past year, tensions have risen. A handful said that the problem really goes back to 1948 when the Palestinians left or were expelled from Palestine. Not a single program that I saw on television or listened to on the radio suggested that waging jihad against infidels was an imperative for Muslims. The word jihad was never mentioned by anyone on any news programs, on radio or television. How about that? Nor, of course, did anyone suggest that the problem between Muslims and Jews began 1,400 years ago and that the only way to keep the peace between the parties was deterrence and Israel would have to deal a massive blow to Hamas in order to restore its ability to deter, that is to make Israel's Arab enemies understand that despite the initial and shocking success of Hamas, Israel still remained overwhelmingly more powerful. On Sunday, the BBC pleasantly surprised me. First, least to said, the BBC's senior foreign correspondent, who for years has been predictably anti-Israel, reported from Jerusalem in quite a different, even sympathetic tone about the unprecedented attack. The large number of Israelis who had been murdered and the certainty that Israel would have to respond. India's Narendra Modi denounced the Hamas attack and notably did not call for Israel to exercise restraint or 
for an end to violence. This is quite a change from his predecessors in India's Congress Party, who always lined up at the side of the Palestinians. In solidarity with the people of Israel, the Brandenburg Gate in Germany's capital, Berlin, was illuminated in the colors of the Israeli flag on Saturday. And a little later, the evening of Sunday, October 8th, he said he was going to find out how the evening news on American, British, Italian, and French Russian television covered the war on day two. That is a Hugh Fitzgerald notes on the war over Jihad Watch. Katie Pavlich from Sunday, October 8th over at townhall.com had the article Breaking Countless Americans Killed and Kidnapped by Hamas Terrorists. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken confirmed Sunday a number of Americans are among the individuals kidnapped by Hamas terrorists who infiltrated Israel on Saturday morning. Many have also been killed. Blinken said during an interview with CNN, we have reports that several Americans were killed. We're working overtime to verify that. At the same time, there are reports of missing Americans. And there again, we're working to verify those reports. Now, speaking of Blinken, speaking of Blinken, I have audio for you. I've been taking a question from a reporter, and he does not acquit himself well. What do you say about the argument that money is fungible? So Iran may have known this money is coming and used other funds to help fund this attack that happened. Iran has, ha, Iran has unfortunately always used and focused its funds on supporting terrorism, on supporting groups like uh, like Hamas, uh, and it's done that when there have been sanctions, it's done that when there haven't been sanctions, and it's always prioritized that. And again, I come back to the proposition that from these funds have always been under the law, available to Iran to use for humanitarian purposes. So that was on NBC's uh, Meet the Press Sunday morning. So in other words, he knew. And he didn't care because he likes his job with the Biden regime and his boss, Barack Obama. He likes the idea of uh, getting a nice pension on the other end. He knew. And he didn't care. So let me tell you a little bit about what people went through at the music festival, the Supernova Festival. Music for peace. It was kind of like what they call a rave out in the desert near the Gaza border. This is from the UK Independent. Party goers at a rave in the desert near the border with Gaza have told how the first hint of the horror raging toward them in the early hours of Saturday was a barrage of rockets roaring through the morning sky as it emerged more than 260 people had died in the attack it was 6 a.m. most of the attendees including a British and a German citizen had not yet been to bed and were dancing to trance music under multicolored tents set up for the supernova festival the music stopped briefly and they dropped to the floor a well-rehearsed drill for Israelis in the south of the country 
used to frequent cross-border exchange of fire with the Hamas militant group. Militant group. Militant group. Oh, that's right. UK Independent is a liberal paper. So they're not going to call them terrorists, much less jihadists. It says, but this was so much worse than usual. Bartender, 26-year-old Peleg Oren said, for five minutes there wasn't a second's break without a rocket. He's one of those who escaped safely. He said the barrage was so relentless that his friend started to have a panic attack and begged him to help her leave. He told the Independent, I have my own car. I tried to convince friends to leave with me, but some had already arranged taxis and wanted to stick together so they wouldn't listen. The main problem was many of the festival goers arrived on buses and had no transport. Minutes later... Hamas operatives who had blown through the border fence into Israel burst into the campus with grenades and assault rifles. They shot and killed and kidnapped dozens of people, according to eyewitnesses and friends. They hunted down partygoers, many dressed in just swimsuits and shorts, as they tried to hide in the wooded area surrounding the encampment. Parents and friends received panic messages seen by the UK independent newspaper that we're reading from here, desperately asking for help and for the army to deploy, saying they were wounded and had no way out. See, Israel, I don't know how to break it to you, they don't have a Second Amendment, right, to keep and bear arms. Strict gun control. So they're sitting ducks. I hope that's changed in the last few days. One girl named by Israeli media as Karen had a pre-existing broken leg. Her brace prevented her from being able to run. Her mother, Inbal, told the Israeli news network Mako she had no way to escape. Those who did escape the initial onslaught were then filmed running through dusty fields against the backdrop of machine gun fire with some dropping to the ground. Then, videos from Gaza started appearing online, including one showing a young woman, Noah Argamani, being abducted by Hamas militants as she rode with her boyfriend on a motorcycle. Yad Gorgelstan, 27, a childhood friend, said, We last heard from Noah around 10 a.m., and then the next thing we see is her on a Hamas propaganda video. He added, Breaking down. You can hear her screaming, No, 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 I am innocent. See, to the Muslim who believes the Quran, there is no such thing as an innocent infidel. They don't believe in that. Yad Gorgelstan, a childhood friend of Noah, shared the last screenshots of Noah's messages moments before she was captured where she was saying she was hiding with a group while assailants were lynching people. She repeatedly called for help, asking for soldiers to come and help them. Yad, audibly shaken, said she was saying there are terrorists going crazy, killing and kidnapping people. Among those believed to have been taken hostage in Gaza is a British man named locally as Jake Marlowe, who had been doing security 
at the event, according to Daniel Abudi, a friend who spoke to the Independent. He sent a last voicemail saying he was watching militants. No, no, not militants. You lying Marxists. You lying, lying Marxists. They're not militants. They're jihadists. Tell the truth, UK Independent. He sent a last voicemail saying he was watching jihadists. See, they don't even have the word militant in quotes. I'm sure he didn't call them militants. Watching them round up people from the party in front of our eyes. We're telling everyone to get out of here, he said in the voicemail. Daniel added, we have spoken to the home front command in Israel and then the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but so far we don't know anything about what happened after that. On Sunday night, Israel's search and rescue agency said more than 260 dead bodies have been recovered from the music festival. See, that doesn't sound like something militants would do. It sounds like something jihadists would do. But the UK Independent, the UK Independent, in the face of all this bloodshed, still can't tell the truth. So the agency called Zaka said they haven't all been collected yet. Talk about the dead bodies. The Israeli military had earlier told the independent they had no firm figures on how many had been abducted to Gaza from the festival, saying very significant numbers of people had been killed and taken hostage. Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conricus, international spokesperson for the Army, said, They're beginning the impossible task of trying to locate and retrieve them. He said it's unlike anything we've ever seen. There's a deep concern for the well-being and lives of the hostages at this stage. I don't think anyone can guarantee they will be reunited alive. We do not know who is alive and who is dead. Hostages were not only taken from the Nova Party in Kibbutz Nirim, just eight kilometers south of the festival, No, no, not militants, jihadists, you lying Marxists of the independent. Jihadists raided the town, going from house to house house, trying to abduct people. One resident who asked not to be named said she knew of a family of three who had been kidnapped. She said no one knows what happened to them. She told the independent terrorists broke into their house and took them hostage. It took the army Almost eight hours to get here. We have been hiding in our shelter all day. Gee, and there must have been a mistake at the UK Independent. They, they, they let the, the, the quote saying the word terrorist get through somehow. Must be a mistake. As for Peleg, the bartender, he only survived because he left the Nova Festival just in time. He described manically driving through farmlands trying to find safety past bombed-out cars full of shot-up, Israeli civilians who had been killed trying to flee. He said there was no army or any help there at all. We used navigation app Waze to navigate through the fields. We saw a car returning that had been near us, the passenger circling his hand saying, go back, go back. There was a car full of holes and dead bodies inside, so we drove back into the fields. There was so much gun and missile fire that he parked by the side of the road and hid until help finally came. He said, my friend Ori 
is still missing, as are the other bar staff. Family members of the missing put out desperate pleas for help. The mother of Shani Luke, a tattoo artist whose body was filmed being driven around Gaza, released a video in German begging for her body to be returned. Yad, Noah's friend, said the family is devastated. Said, my heart is broken as it's Noah's birthday coming up very soon. And knowing she will be in Gaza is killing me. I was with Noah's dad and family yesterday to see him crying for help because his only child has been taken. He is broken. You cannot imagine what this feels like. Oh, boy. Severe vengeance is what Israel must rain down on the jihadists. Severe vengeance. Now, Sean Davis over the Federalist said, in case you wondered how the United States managed to miss all signs that Iran was planning and funding a massive terrorist invasion of Israel, wonder no longer. The Biden administration's top liaison to Iran was spying for it. Oh, yes, children. He links to Ariel Davidson over the Claremont Institute who writes for the New York Post, National Review, The Federalist. She says Rob Malley, the rabid pro-Iran installment of the Biden administration, was an Iranian spy. That this isn't the biggest story in foreign policy world is insane. But the foreign policy blob must protect the Iran deal at all costs. And so... She links to a story from Jake Wallace Simons, editor of the Jewish Chronicle, who writes to the Telegraph and the Spectator, who says, wow, just wow, Robert Malley, U.S. Special Representative for Iran, quote, helped to fund, support, and direct an Iranian intelligence operation designed to influence the United States and alleged and allied governments, according to a trove of purloined Iranian government emails, unquote. He says, this is how I described him in The Spectator last year. Quote, diplomatic sources have described Robert Malley, the U.S. Special Representative for Iran, who is leading the negotiations in Vienna as the most dovish official we've ever seen. In fact, the former head of the International Crisis Group a think tank devoted to dispute resolution, the very embodiment of the doctrine of softness, has been over backwards so far that, as one official put it, he now speaks to Tehran from between his legs. Now, it all makes sense. And Lee Smith over at tabletmag.com had the story October 1st high level Iranian spy ring busted in Washington but do you think this bothers Barack Obama who took almost three days to even comment to even comment on Hamas's war with Israel do you think this actually bothers Joe Biden no No. 
when you are willing to face the truth that these guys are playing for the other side, then no. It won't bother you at all, will it? Now, President Trump was at a rally in Florida, West Palm Beach, and he had some things to say about Bibi Netanyahu. And I have not yet heard this, so we are going to play this for you, sight unseen. So here goes. Room, we followed the whole thing. and He was saying we're in the situation room, but it, it chopped off. It, it started in the middle of the, uh, of the word. About 15 seconds later, it was all over, and we did it. But I'll never forget, I'll never forget that Bibi Netanyahu let us down. That was a very terrible thing. I will say that. And uh, so when I see uh, sometimes uh, the intelligence, you talk about the intelligence, or you talk about some of the things that went wrong over the last week, uh, they've got to straighten it out because they're fighting potentially a very big force. They're fighting potentially... Iran, and when they have people saying the wrong things, everything they say is being digested by these people because they're vicious and they're smart, and boy, are they vicious because nobody's ever seen the kind of sight that we've seen. Nobody's ever seen it, but they cannot play games. So we were disappointed by that, very disappointed, but we did the job ourselves, and it was absolute precision, magnificent, beautiful job. And then... uh, Bibi tried to take credit for it. That wasn't good. That didn't make me feel too good, but that's all right. So they got to strengthen themselves up. It's always about him, isn't it? Trump attacks Netanyahu, and I don't even know why. But it's always about him. It's disgusting. I don't care. I don't care what you think. It's disgusting. I'm calling balls and strikes. Alternatively, Governor DeSantis was on uh, Morning Joe, MSNBC. Joe Scarborough said, I'd like you to begin with talking about the security failures in Israel, if you have any insights on how that happened. And then I'd like to know if you were president of the United States or if you were president right now, would the DeSantis administration support an Israeli military strike either on Iranian military targets, Iran's oil infrastructure, which, of course, funds terrorism across the globe. Here's what DeSantis said. Well, on the former, I I think it's too soon to tell. I don't have any inside information, but clearly this was an orchestrated attack. Uh, Israel prepares for things like this, and uh, Hamas was able to have, unfortunately, a great deal of success. I think in the past, there may have been some people in Israel thought Hamas could be managed, but I also think that there was an impulse pushing against them taking care of Hamas once and for all, because they would always come under international commendation. Uh, People would start attacking Israel. I mean, how many uh, resolutions has the United Nations nations done attacking Israel over the years. So I think that there was that practical political consideration that maybe caused some Israeli leaders uh, to hold back. In terms of Iran, uh, look, this is personal for me in the sense of I served in Iraq back in 2007, 2008. We were in places like Fallujah and Ramadi, mostly Sunni Arab al-Qaeda fighters at the time. But most of the casualties U.S. troops were suffering were at the hands of Iranian-backed Shia militias. They killed hundreds 
hundreds of our troops in Iraq, probably over a thousand. Of course, they were responsible through Hezbollah for killing our Marines back in 1983 in the Beirut barracks bombing. So Iran has a lot of American blood on its hands. Look, I think that uh, Israel should be focused on uprooting Hamas uh, to make this a larger role. I think does have some risks, but I would say the United States should turn every screw so that Iran is not getting money flowing into its coffers, particularly with their oil. I think Biden's administration thought that there could be a reproachment here. They eased off on some of the sanctions. There's been a lot of discussion on the $6 billion. I think that was a mistake, but they've been getting a lot of money leading up to this. The Iranian regime, when they're funding terrorism, uh, it's not a necessarily a practical consideration. This is their religious and ideological worldview. This is why they exist as a government, and you're just not going to be able to have a peaceful situation with a government like that. So turn the screws on them financially, dry up their ability to fund terrorism. You know, that's something we should all be able to agree on. Do you hear that? Finally, we have a politician who has the guts to say that this is Iran's religious and ideological worldview. I was flabbergasted. I don't remember anybody ever saying that there was some kind of jihad component to religion. Not anybody in politics. Huh. Not anybody in politics. That takes a lot of guts. I uh, I really admire that. There's so much, but um, don't ever think they're not planning on doing it here because they are. As I started out the show today, saying. We don't know how many tens of thousands of military-aged men have come across our wide-open southern border. We don't have any idea how many Hamas, Islamic Jihad, Al-Qaeda, ISIS sleeper cells are in this country. Hamas has been threatening to behead child hostages. That's what they're all about. Do you remember that shooting in San Bernardino, California a few years ago? Husband and wife went into a conference room and shot and killed like 13 or 14 people. These were people who a few months earlier had held a baby shower for them to celebrate their having a baby. But they murdered them because they believe the Koran. Because they believe the Koran. Me saying these things is is not going to make me very popular with a lot of people. A lot of people get really upset when you tell the truth about these things. And not just Muslims. So if you if you think of yourself as a Christian and you're upset that I'm saying these things, I will quote to you Galatians 4, verse 16. Have I then become your enemy? for speaking the truth to you. Is that how it's going to be? The truth offends people. 
just like the gospel is a, an offense. So the U.S. Office of Palestinian Affairs, part of the State Department, tweeted out on Saturday, October 7th, these words. We unequivocally, oh, by the way, by the way, I, I apologize. Let me back up. This is today's tweet of the day brought to you by a big old car dealership called Red River Auto. Big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice the way you want to online at redriverauto.com and have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental USA. Today's tweet of the day. U.S. Office of Palestinian Affairs, part of the U.S. State Department, on Saturday, October 7th, tweeted out, we unequivocally condemn the attack of Hamas terrorists and the loss of life that has incurred. We urge all sides to refrain from violence and retaliatory attacks. Terror and violence solve nothing. Senator Ted Cruz tweeted in response, this is disgraceful, and every single person involved in drafting and approving this tweet should be immediately expelled from the U.S. government. But you know what? I guarantee you not a one of them was. Because, again, Dementia Joe Biden and his boss, Barack Obama, are playing for the opposite team. Libby Emmons, who writes over at the uh, Post Millennial and Human Events and the Federalist and the New York Post, she said, it looks like the U.S. Office of Palestinian Affairs posted, then deleted a comment that urges Israel not to defend itself against Hamas attacks. Why am I not surprised? You've been listening to episode 409 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. If you have any questions for us, email us, contact at docwashburnshow.com. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansource Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smooth Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier Tenth. Senior Vice President, Engineering, IT, and Interoperability for the Doc Washburn Show. And that's the way it is. Thursday, October 12th, 2023.